I think Brother Jeff may be playing a, a mean joke on me. Um, several weeks ago, I mean like weeks and weeks ago, he, he'd asked me to, to preach on this Sunday because he knew he was going to be on vacation. And he said, I think, I think we'll be about John chapter 11. And I looked at it, I was like, all right, Lazarus. All right, everyone knows the story of Lazarus. Got it, no problem. Then about two weeks ago, he came up and he said, hey, Travis, I don't think I'm going to make it to chapter 11. So you're going to be doing the end of chapter 10. And my first thought was, okay, yeah, you know, perfect, no problem. Because um, I honestly, I find it a fun challenge to kind of tackle hard things and people don't know a lot about. Um, and I didn't really read through the passage, and I'm not really sure Brother Jeff did, because if he did, surely he would not have given this to me to preach. Um, but I, really, I read through it, and you'll see why in a moment, why this is a pretty complicated passage that we're going to be going through today. Because if you read it just in the context of John, you have no idea what Jesus is even talking about. And so hopefully today we're going to kind of, we're going to be kind of jump around the Bible a little bit so I can hopefully make clear to you what Jesus was talking about in this passage. Um, and I told the first service, my ultimate fear is that something is not clear today and I have a bunch of confused looks and you guys walk out of here going, what just happened? So I'm praying that the Holy Spirit just works in the way he's supposed to and we make this clear so we guys can walk out of here with not just information but also application. So Chapter 10, we've been walking through, and as you guys know, when we started off, he starts talking about how Jesus claims, he says, I am the shepherd. He said, we are the sheep. And he essentially says, you know, true believers will know my voice because I know them. And then he gets to this passage where he says, he claims, I and the Father are one. So we're, we're going to come, come on the hills of that statement. But I do want to look at that statement real quick because that statement is what leads into this whole passage we're going to be reading today. So in verse 30, Jesus finishes out by saying, I and the Father are one. Now, because of some fancy translation and gender mechanics that are there in the original Greek that I'm not going to bore you guys with today, it's, it's kind of interesting that word one is a neutral gender word, which essentially in the Greek context is commuting, communicating to us that Jesus was not claiming to be the same person as God, okay? But what he was claiming was that in the same essence, equal in nature, and what they really are as divine beings, he says we are equal, which also brings about they were the same in purpose and in mission, okay? So it's really important for us to understand that when Jesus is claiming I and the Father are one, we understand that he is saying, I'm not the same person as God, because we know when we, when we say the Holy Trinity, we say it's, what, three persons in one, right? But in essence, in equality, in mission, they're the same. Now, I want to fast forward and jump around to John chapter 17 really quick. I'm going to make Spencer do some work up there. John chapter 17, verse 20. Um, I, and this morning I said we may get there in a couple of weeks in the book of John, but who am I kidding? It might be a couple of years before we get there. Um, but Jesus is speaking, and, he, and he's actually he's praying to God, and he, he's talking about the, the followers he has. And he says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the followers that are following him then. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know what he's talking about there, right? He's talking about you and me. Jesus is referring to us in that statement. He says, not, he's, God, I'm so thankful for these you've given me now. But generations and generations later, through their word, the way they pass the gospel through to their families and to the world, 
I also ask for these who will believe in me through their word. And then verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, same word, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, Jesus is not saying that we're going to be equal in deity to him. That's not what he's referring to. But it does insinuate that we are equal in mission as God. And today we're going to be looking a lot about the Father who sent. Over and over again, Jesus is referred to or refers to God as the one who sent me or the one from whom I'm sent. And so as we dive into this verse, we're going to be looking at there's a big argument about the works of, of Jesus and, and whether or not they were good. But here's the first thing I want us to understand before we get there. Jesus' good works, his purpose through his works was to give us a picture of the character of the sender. Okay? Now I'll, I'll give you guys a little story to help illustrate what that might mean. So we live in this computer age, right, where I really feel like a lot of what could be communicated in a personal handwritten letter has been lost, right? Um, in a text message, it's a quick, usually it's a one sentence, and then if you read students' text messages today, it's, it's like symbols and, and one letter words that you have to like translate into a different language to understand what it even means. Um, it's harder than Greek sometimes. But I think what we've lost is we've really lost the you can, the intentionality, the tone, the heart of the sender in this digital age. What happened to the actual letter sitting in the mail, right? Now, if you're like me, about 95% of the stuff I get in the mail is stuff I either throw away or want to throw away, but they want money. So I have to keep them. But I know some of you, some of you remember the days when maybe you were dating your spouse before technology, and maybe y'all didn't live in the same spot, and you would write letters and say, hey, this is what's going on. You would encourage them, say, I love you so much, right? And you would send it off, and then I know a lot of females probably would get those letters, and you would just save them, and you'd reread them and read them over and again. You'd put them in a box. Megan actually has a Travis box. I'm afraid to open it because I think it might be incriminating. But there, there, there was like this sweetness to these letters, I even got pretty good. In, in high school, I learned how to fold the paper just right. We, uh, believe it or not, I did exist before cell phones. Um, so my high school years were actually handwritten notes, and we would pass notes and stuff, and I learned how to fold the paper just right, where it had the little pull tab, and you'd write, like, open here, as if it was locked or something. Um, and I think that's what Megan has in the box, and I don't even want to know what's on there. But anyways, <coughs> those letters meant something because it communicated that the sender spent time for you. Let me tell you another story that kind of ties this in. In my last church, there was a sweet older couple um, named the Raps, and they they happened to live right across the street from us, and um, what's interesting is he went to A&M, she went to Texas, but she drank the Kool-Aid and was like all Aggie, and so, you know, and I gave her grief about that all the time. She sold out. But anyways, sweet old couple, um, who does not participate in the digital world. Like, they, they just don't do digital stuff. And Megan has created this tradition in our household, um, which most good traditions in our household come from Megan, and I just take credit for them when she's not around. 
Um, but every year when we get Christmas cards and stuff, throughout the year, Megan will display a handful of those Christmas cards in our home, and with the, in, the intention of us just praying for that family, um, thinking back on, you know, why we're so glad for that family to be part of our life. And Megan will end the week by kind of writing a letter to that family. She says, hey, want to let you know we were praying for you. Um, here's some things that were going on in our, our life. And just kind of, she, she sends them out throughout the year, and hopefully we finish by Christmas time. Well, she updated me yesterday and said, I think I have several left. So we're almost there. Um, but it's, it's a really cool thing. So I don't remember if it was last year or the year before, we, we sent the wraps, uh, well, they sent us a card, and Megan wrote a letter and said, hey, thank you so much, and uh, we're praying for you. Well, Miss Rapp writes this like, letter back, and it's like four pages long, handwritten, and she's just saying, thank you, that is so sweet. And then she begins to go on, and she starts updating us on what's going on in El Campo, and what's going on in the church, and what's going on with her family. Um, well, none of this was really new information to me. I mean, I, I, I'm friends with half of Facebook, or half of El Campo on Facebook, so she didn't know that I really had all this information already. But it really started to demonstrate the difference between the digital world and the sweetness of a handwritten note. So we get this letter, but then this letter, she asks questions, you know, like, so what's going on with y'all, and all this kind of stuff. And so then you're like, okay, I guess we need to send a letter back. So Megan writes a letter back, and it's kind of like, thank you for the thank you kind of stuff. A few weeks go by, and we get another letter back from Miss Rapp. Hey, this is, this is one of the updates and stuff, and um, I don't think we've sent a letter back since then, but it's kind of to the point where how many thank you for the thank yous is appropriate? I don't know. I mean, it's really sweet. But here's what's cool about that is what was sent is indicative of the heart of the sender. This lady, she cared and, encur- and wanted to encourage us so much that she wanted to spend time to describe and write out our, her thoughts about us. And so in the context of when we're reading Scripture, Jesus was sent to us. So let's pick up and read and start in verse 31 of John chapter 10. <clears throat> so Jesus had just claimed, I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, and this is where it gets crazy, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I know, we'll get there in a minute. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. All right, so let's walk through this, because like I said, Jesus responds with this thing that Makes no sense. I mean, it it really doesn't until you dig in. 
Matter of fact, when I was studying this, I read through probably about 11 commentaries trying to get some pictures of what is going on here, and half of them even ignore this passage. Be, I mean, like I said, if Brother Jeff is watching, he's probably laughing at me right now. So, <clears throat> let's go back to 31. So, in the, in the Greek language, if you don't know, it's actually like word pictures. It's not like in English where these words just connotate one meaning. In, in the Greek language, it's like, hey, this one word means like a picture of something. So these Jews, when they go to pick up stones, it literally means they left to go grab stones. They left that place to go grab large stones. It wasn't like they just got some pebbles and tried to throw it at Jesus and said, oh, I got you in the eye. No, I mean, they, they were aiming to kill him. Okay? So what were they doing? They were going to bring judicial judgment on Jesus without a trial. Now, it was laid out in Levitical law that blasphemy was to be punished by stoning, but these men were not allowing the due process of law to take their course. So the first thing to notice here is that these Jews have now placed themselves in the role of a judge. They have decided it doesn't matter the process, it doesn't matter what's supposed to be going on, we are now the ones to judge you, Jesus, and we're going to do so. So then Jesus begins this dialogue that kind of plays out like a courtroom um, defense. However, it's interesting because Jesus never really defends himself. Rather, he questions their reasoning and backs himself up using their law. So now they become in this situation where they're either going to have to oppose their own law, which to their community, if they break the law, they're lawbreakers. Or they're going to oppose the possibility of this being the Son of God, which means they're opposing God. They put themselves in the roles of a judge, but they didn't realize they're stepping into an impossible situation. So let's look at verse 33, uh, or 32. Jesus answers them. He says, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? I love that question. Jesus, because these Jewish men can look at the things that Jesus has done. He has made the blind see. He's made the lame walk. He's fed the hungry. He's helped the needy. He's helped the sick. All these things that no person could look at and say, well, that was a bad thing. So Jesus says, so which good thing do you guys consider bad? Which thing, like how, how was I too nice? How was I too good? And not only that, he even ties it back to God. How about which thing that even God approves of was bad? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. So this is their accusation. Now, I think we, we've heard the word blaspheme, but I, went, I wanted to look up the, the definition so we could really understand what are they accusing Jesus of. And blaspheme means to speak irreverently of God. Okay, and this does tie back to Levitical law. If you're going through our chronological Bible reading, we actually didn't read this chapter because it's, it's a lot of just law, 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 law that doesn't really apply to us today. But in Leviticus 24, 16, <clears throat> it does say, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, uh, shall be put to death. 
it's so easy to miss this accusation that is wrong. Because on the surface level, it really seems like the accusation is correct. They're like, hey, no, the good stuff you did was fine, but you're claiming to be God. But what are the actual words they say? They say, but you, being a man, make yourself God. Oh, how wrong they are in that one statement right there. Jesus did not have to make himself God. Because Jesus was and is God. And the truth is, is Jesus is not making himself anything. But showing through his words and showing through his actions, his works, he is proving himself to be what he truly is. The Son sent by the Father to bring life and light to mankind. And the problem is, is if the accusation is wrong, the judgment is always going to be wrong. One commentator even wrote that the Jewish people in this picture, it's almost as if they were getting those stones and they were throwing them up at heaven to judge sin. And instead those rocks were falling right back on their head. Let's read what Jesus says in that complicated mumbo jumbo of a verse. Verse 34. Jesus answers them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. Now, I'm going to do what I do with students. I teach them how to read the Bible. Sometimes in the Scripture, you have to just take it like phrase by phrase to really understand what's going on. And so that's what we're going to kind of walk through. Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. Notice it's little g, God's. To us, that doesn't make any sense unless you're an expert in the Old Testament. I have read the scriptures. I have never once heard explained to me where this comes from. But to these Jews standing there that day, they would have been extremely familiar with it. It was a law they just understood. Almost as if if one of these Jews, Jews in this, you know, Old Testament, or this, this scripture came and was plopped down in America, modern day America today, we gave them a car and said, hey, go drive. And then we expected them that expected them to know that at a red light, you can turn right. Because in context, that doesn't make any sense. You're told your whole life, red means stop. Well, we know, we're familiar with the law to know, well, we can turn right anyways. In the same way, we don't understand just from the context of John what this is talking about. So we're going to actually go back and look. This comes from the 82nd Psalm. The 82nd Psalm is what Jesus is referring to. So I'm going to flip over there now, and we're going to read through it. essentially in this psalm God is explaining to the people that he is the ultimate judge and that while man may judge they're going to be doing it unjustly and imperfectly and they're still men and they're going to die and we'll talk a little more about that in a second it says God has taken his place in the divine council In the midst of the gods, little g, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, little g, Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. 
O rise, O God, big G, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We know from Old Testament reading that God did set judges before men, and their role was to take, basically to enact the word of God, to enact the judgment of God on mankind, to determine the fate of their fellow man on God's behalf. So in Jewish tradition, they eventually started calling these judges and made them synonymous with the word gods because they were representatives of God. Okay, y'all following so far? (laughs) So it gets complicated. They were called gods because in their office they determined the fate of other men. They were entitled to be so designated for they represented, however imperfectly, the divine will insofar as they were called upon to minister God's word. So Jesus is looking at these Jewish men. He's not literally calling them gods, but what he's about to do, he's pointing out the inconsistency in what they were practicing and what they're saying now. They are saying it's okay to title a man, little g, God, who judges on behalf of man. And so Jesus points out, then why is it wrong for me to say I am God if you already apply the title of God to men? Now we know Jesus really is the Son of God and deserving of that title, but he's pointing out their reasoning doesn't make any sense in this case. Let's keep going. Verse 35. If he called them little g gods to whom the words of God came, okay? So Jesus reasoned, Jesus reasoned with them and said, if God gave these unjust judges the title gods because of their office, why do you consider it blasphemy that he calls himself the son of God in light of what his works are proving him to be? Not only his works, but also the testimony of people around him. People around him were saying, hey, we know this is the Messiah. We know this is the Christ. And Jesus is like, don't they point to the Father? Don't they point to the God? How can they not? Do you see the good in them? It's also never found in Scripture that the Word of God came to Jesus. You guys have thought about that? We see over and over the Word of God came to the prophets. Even the New Testament, the Word of God came to Paul. The Word of God was given to these judges, these little g-gods. But it never came to Jesus because Jesus is the Word of God. And then he says, and Scripture cannot be broken. Now this was a statement that these Jewish, religious, faithful would not have argued Jesus with. They would have said, yes, we we agree with you. Scripture can't be voided. Scripture can't be annulled. It cannot be broken. The Word of God literally cannot be broken. It breaks whatever opposes it. But Jesus being the Word of God, see, they're missing it. Jesus being the Word of God, He can't be voided. He can't be annulled. He can't be broken. Verse 36. So essentially, he has just said, okay, do you see your inconsistency in 
and the problem with saying I'm blaspheming because I called myself God when you have already called these other men gods? He says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? The works of God cannot be denied because they are good. He looks at these Jewish guys and says, so if I am the Messiah, can you say of the Messiah, the one who God has set apart and sent into the world, that he's blaspheming? Well, these Jewish guys are silent because essentially they've been saying, well, if you really are the Christ, then no, we couldn't say that. But Jesus says, but look at my works. Look what I, who I'm proving myself to be. But the works of God cannot be denied because they are good. What's also interesting here is anytime that the, the word of God came to man and they were sent, they were always sent to like a city or sent to a people group or sent to an area. Look where Jesus says he's sent. Into the world. So already Jesus is saying, you guys are completely missing. The point is, I am the Son of God. I'm way above what you're, you're pointing me out to be. <clears throat> and like I said, I know that that's a very confusing statement, but I want to kind of boil it down to this. Jesus has taken their argument, their accusation, and through reasoning, he has essentially said, so what you're saying is, the Word of God denies the Word of God. That's what, he has, that's what he's saying. This is what you're telling me, right? Now, any rational person would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense at all. So these Jewish leaders are quickly finding out that the, the grounds they thought they had, the judgment they had made on Jesus, was quickly falling apart. So then Jesus moves back to the beginning argument. and looks at his works, which we talked about being his purpose. Verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe me. I love that. Jesus is like, if my works are not proving who I am, then don't even listen to me. But if I do them, like as in if I do the works of the Father, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Notice Jesus never self-glorifies. Not once does Jesus say, hey, these works are for me, or these works are to make me look good. He always points back to the Father. And I think the reason that is, is because the moment that he glorifies himself, even though he's worthy, the Jews would have had something to throw back at him. But the fact that his entire purpose was to glorify God through proving God's love for us was important. Now look at verse uh, 38, the end of that. Believe the works. And this is where we look at the heart of the sender. What is God's desire? He's orchestrated this entire scripture, this, this happenings of the world to get to this point. Why? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. Think about that. God of the universe 
is not saying, just follow me. The God of the universe has written this sweet letter that says, I want you to know me. I want you to understand me. I want you to see the intentionality that I have for you. You can almost see just the way the words are laid out. It's like a handwritten letter where God is just begging us to know him. Now looking at this passage, it's really hard to go, okay, so what is the application here? What do we walk away with? Where if our purpose in going through the book of John is getting to know Jesus, I think that's where we begin. The first application is, you know what, we see Jesus once again claims to be the Son of God, sent by God to show God by his good works. Now up to this point, like I said, the Jews had just seen Jesus kind of do these things for people that no one could, no one could deny that was, it was good for people, it was good for the nation of Israel, they were just good things. But what they haven't seen yet is that this progresses where Jesus shows the ultimate love by sacrificing his life on the cross for us. The second thing I want us to see is that even though Jesus takes a stance of a defendant in a courtroom being accused, he never once defends himself. He just proves that their reasoning is inconsistent and their understanding of Scripture is wrong. Because God does not need us to defend him. And I think we have to understand, because a lot of times I think we, we apologize for, for things that go on in our world, and you know, God does things this way, and we apologize, but God doesn't need our defense. Accusations thrown at God will never defeat or destroy or tear down who God is. He doesn't need us to defend him. The third is that this is, this is all about the sender. God has taken time to personally make himself known to mankind so that he can spell out his love for us. A God that doesn't care just says, follow me or else. A God that has a deep love for us says, you know what, I'm going to spend time to intentionally make a way for you to know and understand me. And the fourth is that just as Jesus was sent to us when he claimed that, hey, we're supposed to be one in mission, we are now been sent. The word of God has come to us, therefore we are now sent out. And so I ask you to kind of consider, when you think about Scripture, when you think about the gospel, when you think about the story in history that God has orchestrated to show his love and to reveal himself to us, does it hit you like a text message where it's just like, oh, that's kind of a one and done, not very important. Um, you know, maybe I'll read it later kind of thing. Or does it hit you as a handwritten note where time and effort has been spent so you can truly know the person and the heart of the sender, God? So I'm going to pray, and Annie's going to come up. And I know this is a weird passage to kind of to end off on, but I do want to encourage us. We are being sent, but I want us to really dig down and think about, man, the love that God has for us causes us to follow him in obedience. If someone cares about me that much, I'm going to do whatever I can to show
people that I care for them. And it happens outside these walls as much as inside these walls. So let's pray. God, you are so holy beyond our comprehension, but yet you invite us to know you. You invite us to understand your heart, to understand the, the love that you have for us. And God, I just pray that if there's someone in this room who has never thought about the depth of your love, that today they're challenged with that, God, and they just feel compelled to know you today. And Father, for many of us who, who have been walking in obedience and, and following you, Father, I pray that we take the time to recognize the, the treasure of what your word is for us, the treasure of what your love is for us, and that it compels and encourages us to go let every man and woman and child know that love. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.